So we're going to talk about Peter now. Our, our focus is going to move to Peter. So we, you know, we, we saw Philip and Barnabas, and we met them, and we, we're in this section now of God's grace for every race. So we've seen Philip go to the Samaritans, and a huge revival broke out, and they received the word with joy. They received Philip, a Jew, who they hate. And uh, the Samaritans were brought into grace. And then we saw Philip preach to an Ethiopian eunuch. And uh, he brought and he received that with joy. And he brought it back to Africa. And then we saw Saul, this ultra-conservative, ultra-legalistic Pharisee who was seeking to just utterly uproot the church by its roots. And he was brought to faith <clears throat> and um, received it gladly. And then, you know, we saw Paul also being prepared for his ministry through his retreat into Arabia and his rejection at Damascus and his rejection at Jerusalem. All this was preparing Paul for the life to come, for his, for his ministry that's coming. We're going to get back to him, but right now our focus is going to return back to Peter. Peter, the leader of the apostles, Simon Peter. <clears throat> now we're going to see Peter being prepared for his greater ministry. Because Peter, he needs an attitude adjustment. I mean, all the apostles do, I would imagine. But we, we're just, the story is going to tell us about Peter. Peter's Peter's going to get an attitude adjustment, and uh, because Peter's attitude toward Gentiles is the same as they always have been, same as same as Noah's was. You know, when when God told Noah to go to the Ninevites, he said, "No, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to a Gentile nation." Jonah. Did I? Who did I say? I, Noah. I say Noah. <laughs> Different Noah. <laughs> Jonah. You know, he rebelled against the word of the Lord, and he <clears throat> he said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to talk to a bunch of Gentiles. Well, that attitude has obviously continued. Uh, the Jews didn't really like anybody that wasn't Jew. They hated the Samaritans, and they thought that Gentiles were, they called them goyim, which means unwashed. They're Gentile dogs. They're unclean. They're common. They're not... You know they're outside the covenants. They're 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 like a, they're like a hog or a pig. They're they're a common thing we're not allowed to associate with. So that's got to change because right now you know we're six years out from the cross about right here, and there's still no Gentiles in the church. And so it would appear as if uh, these apostles took Christ's command to to be my martyrs. In Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and they ran that through their Jewish grid, you know, their Jewish upbringing, culture, society, uh, and apparently they come to the conclusion that that just means Jews. This is going to go to the Jews at the end, to the end of the earth, to all the Jews. Seems like that's what they were thinking. Surely, we're not being told to bring this to the Gentiles. We're just told to go everywhere that a Jew lives and bring this message to, to them. Kind of what it seems like is happening here. To 
but six years out, and we're still, this is still just a Jewish religion. <clears throat> and so, you know, at this time, the prejudice against Gentiles was really strong. Um, during Peter's time, a Jewish midwife was forbidden from helping a Gentile woman uh, birth a, in childbirth. They were forbidden to do that because they were they were thought that if you help a Gentile woman give birth, you're propagating Gentile scum. We don't do that. We don't we don't help Gentile women. Gentiles can help the Gentiles. We don't do that. They were forbidden from doing that. <clears throat> so that's kind of where we're at. Culturally, culturally, inside and outside the church. You know, this is the church the same way. They're all Jews. They all have the same prejudices. They all look at the world through the same Jewish grid. But the Lord takes Peter and he says, I'm going to change your mind and then you're going to, because he's the leader, right? He's the leader of the church. So let's pick up here at, uh, well, we'll start at 31 and read that little summary again and then go from there. Chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 31. <clears throat> it's about this little this little parenthetical statement about the church here after all the events with Paul. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord. In the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So that's important because they were under all this persecution, but now since Saul's been brought into the fold, you know, the persecution has ended. So now the church is free. But instead of just this little church in Jerusalem, now it's, you know, it's in Samaria and in Galilee and throughout all Judea. So the Lord, through all the events in Paul, he spread the church to cover this whole area now. So now we're to the Gentiles. We got to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, now, now there's a problem because the Jews hate the Gentiles and they, they get them, consider them to be unclean. So now, as Peter was traveling through all those regions, those regions being Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, that's what that that's pointing to. <clears throat> these regions, he came down also to the saints who live at Lida or Lida or Lida. I'm not sure how you say that. I think it's Lydda. And we see there, once again, the believers are referred to as saints. And just a little quick note, in the New Testament, that is always plural. Always. It's always saints, plural. It's never a saint. The church is always referred to as a body of saints and believers. Verse 33. There he found a man named Aeneas, Aeneas is how I'm going to say that. They found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years for he was paralyzed. This guy was a paraplegic, maybe quadriplegic, I'm not sure, but he was, something had happened to him. He fell out of a tree or got hit by a car or something. Some injury occurred anyway and paralyzed him. We're not sure if it's from the neck down or, or from the waist down, but he's, he's paralyzed. <clears throat> Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up, and all who lived at Lydda and Sharon, that's just that's modern-day Tel Aviv, 
Okay, that the Valley of Sharon, that area. It's west of Jerusalem. All this is happening west of Jerusalem, over near Joppa, along the coast of the Mediterranean. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. <clears throat> so, a couple of things here. Notice what he tells Aeneas. Jesus Christ heals you. He doesn't even say, I heal you in the name of Jesus Christ. He leaves himself completely out of it. He just says, Jesus has healed you. I thought that was noteworthy. Because, you know, most, most of these guys today, they'll, I heal you in the name of Jesus Christ. That's not what Peter did here. And so what's significant about this? Why are we being told this? It's because Lydda is a majority Gentile place, city. That's, uh, you know, there's some Jewish saints that live here, and Peter's here, you know, minister to them, but for the most part, this is a Gentile area. And this is a pretty significant miracle that he performs in this, gen in this majority Gentile place. <clears throat> so, verse 36. Now in Joppa, Joppa, by the way, is where Jonah went. Whenever God told him to go to the Ninevites, he said, nope. He went to Joppa, got on the ship, and tried to go the other way. God, you know, put him in a fish's belly and took him where he wanted him to go anyway. <laughs> but there's kind of a parallel there between Peter and Jonah. They both went to Joppa. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman, wait a minute, y'all. Which means gazelle, are beautiful eyes. I feel like I missed something here. Something important. Just wait a second. Okay. Maybe not. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. So, he goes in to this uh, Joppa. And there was a Joppa named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. That word Dorcas means gazelle. Which, you know, is beautiful eyes is what that's meaning. Mean. <clears throat> this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. When they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him and four of him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. So this is a beautiful picture right here, this, this woman Dorcas. She was, she was beautiful inside and out. She had a beautiful soul. She was, you know, she's a good picture here of how the church, the New Testament church elevates women in the Old Testament context. She would never be mentioned. You know, nobody would care about Dorcas. 
but um, you know how they keep saying me and them women, me and them women. But uh, but Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. So let's talk about this miracle. <clears throat> so I mentioned that Jonah was in Joppa. <clears throat> Tabitha is Aramaic. That's her Aramaic form of her name, with Dorcas being the Greek form, which means gazelle. I mentioned how women are elevated in Christianity. <clears throat> What's happened here is, uh, if you'll notice, these, these two miracles closely parallel when Jesus healed the, the crippled, the paralyzed man at the, at the pool of Bethesda and told him, get up, pick up your bed, and walk, and he did. And this, this, this looks strangely familiar to that. Same with Tabitha. It looks a lot like when he raised Jairus' daughter. He said, little sheep, get up. Same, this is very similar to that, very parallel miracle. <clears throat> And so these are some pretty major things. I mean, this is a resurrection. This guy brought this girl back to life, okay? And again, the main thing here is that Joppa is a mainly Gentile enclave. It's a, it's a majority Gentile place. And in both cases, you know, all who lived at Lydon and Sharon saw this Fairlount Hill and they turned to the Lord. Same with when Dorcas was raised. Uh, it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. These are still all Jews. Just, just want to point that out. Even though these are gen mainly Gentile areas, these are all still Jews being coming to the Lord. But remember, Jesus told the disciples when he was with them, I give you power and authority. And he said, "You, your works you have seen me do, even greater works you shall do. And so... I believe what that what he meant by that is they're not going to do greater miracles than Jesus, but there's more of them. There was only one Jesus; he could only be in one place at a time. You know, if he was in Jerusalem, he was, he couldn't be in Capernaum and vice versa. Whereas with these apostles and other men, because we we saw Philip performing miracles and Barnabas, <clears throat> they're all they're in fourteen places at one time, and they're doing all the same miracles Jesus did. Okay, so I, I believe that's what Jesus meant when he said, you will do even greater miracles than I will. It means there's more of you. Okay? And we see Peter here doing miracles that very closely mirror the miracles of Jesus, especially in the way they're written down for us. I think that's intentional, just to show us how close these miracles are to what Jesus was doing. These men are using the power of Jesus. Okay? And so another thing about this is just the fact that the Jewish burial was conducted the way it is is what allowed these things to happen. Because you notice um, they had washed Tabitha's body 
They had washed her body, laid it in an upper room. And that's what Jairus' daughter, remember when he raised Jairus' daughter, they had washed her body and put her in the upper room. There were mourners there wailing over her. And here you have these widows. They have their tunics and their blankets that Dorcas had made for her while she was alive. She had been serving the widows. And they're here, here, look at this blanket she made for me. Oh, Dorcas, you know, I mean, this kind of the same scene going on here. It's just so similar. That cannot be an accident, okay? And so the way a Jewish burial worked at that time, and I'm pretty sure even today, is they will wash the body and then wrap it in these cloths with these spices and oils to cover up the smell, you know, the decomposition. But for the first day or two, they just wash the body, put it in the room, and let the mourners come and kind of like a wake sort of thing. They, they can view the body, do their wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then after a few days, the body's wrapped and it's placed in a cave, you know, or a, a place to decompose. And um, it's left there for whatever, a year, yes. I don't know for sure, probably different, just depending. But the body's placed in this cave for a length of time so that all the soft tissue can decompose. And then after that happens, the bones are taken and they're put in what's called an ossuary, an ossuary, which is, they call it a bone box. And they take the bones, put it in this ossuary, and that's what's preserved and kept in the burial. Apparently you can go to Jerusalem and these there's these big giant place is just full of these bone boxes, all these bones of these Jews that have died over the years, just millions of them. So that's how their, their burial goes. They produce them to a pile of bones, put it in a box, and that's what they say. So it's important that Dorcas here had only been washed and placed in the room so Peter could get to her. <clears throat> and he just asked the Lord, you know, can you help Tabitha here? We love her. And she came back alive. But this happened. It's a very major work of ministry happening in a, in a majority Gentile place. Okay? That's the main point. So we see positive experiences in Gentile places softening Peter's prejudices here is what's happening. I think that's why we're showed these two events. <clears throat> so I got a couple of quotes today from R. Kent Hughes. One of them's pretty long, so. But it's so this the application of this is so important. But here's here's what he says about this this beginning section. It says in Peter's case, despite all of his love and devotion for Christ, his unfortunate attitude could have strangled his ministry and could have reduced Christianity to just another sect of Judaism. God cannot allow that. So he began to help Peter develop a proper attitude toward the world, the whole world. This text has much to say to us as it did to Peter and the apostles. Uh, the stakes are just as high today. How we look at those around us is crucial. So he goes on to say, Peter had two very positive ministry experiences that helped turn his attitude around. The first 
was in the town of Lida, today called Lod, at the site of the modern Tel Aviv airport. It involved this paralytic named Aeneas. And of course, the second was uh, Dorcas being raised from the dead. Uh, is this Peter Swindle? <laughs> Peter Swindle said this. It's kind of Charles Swindle, I mean. This is a quote from Charles Swindle. He said, This was real power. Some of us for years have been saying, Arise and make your bed to our teenagers with no result. <laughs> it was a great miracle. There's no other explanation. The second miracle described a woman in Joppa. Okay, so Peter came in with a prayer and free words, tapped the rise, he presented her alive, just like Jesus presented Cyrus' daughter alive to the mourners. When he you know he sent them out of the room. Same thing. He made them all leave the room. He said a prayer. Both of these young ladies came back to life, and then he presented them alive afterwards. Oh, uh, anyway. All right, let's move on. So Peter's been softened up a little. So let's move on to the... Oh, one more point, really important point here, is notice at the end in verse 43, it says, And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. So this Simon would have been a believer in the church, I guess we could call it a church at Joppa. But this guy was a tanner. Okay. And in uh, a tanner's place of business was disgusting to a fastidious Jew. Because those animals are killed here, you know. Their skins are prepared. Um, I think it mentioned somewhere Later on, that his his house was by the sea, and they, I think they, he was there. Well, first of all, because tanning requires a lot of salt water, so there's a ready source of salt water. But also, there's a sea breeze all the time, blow the stench away. Um, in that day, a tanner had to live at least 50 cubits outside of town. They weren't allowed to even set up their shop inside where the city was, because they found it. They all found it so disgusting working with these dead animals. You know, was to them touching a dead animal made you un ritually unclean. You had to go wash yourself, and you were unclean to like until the, the end of the day that day. And uh, even rabbinical law, this is not in the Torah, but rabbinical law said that if a woman is betrothed to a man, and then she later finds out he's involved in tanning in any way, she can legally break that betrothal. She doesn't have to marry him. Because he was a tanner. Because he, he deals with dead animals and their skins and stuff. So the fact that Peter stayed with this guy, you know, that's, that's significant. That's significant. Just want to point that out. And uh, so we, we come now to chapter 10. We're going to meet old Cornelius. Is a tanner like a, a taxidermist? Well, a leather maker. A taxidermist, you know. They do tan. Yeah. Oh, a, a taxidermist is involved in tanning because they preserve the hide to stretch over the mold, but a tanner just like he makes leather. Right. Probably wearing a lot of 
people mountain, you know, head mounts of first century, uh, you know, Judea. I doubt they were mounting a lot of deer heads. <laughs> but they did use a lot of leather. Somebody had to make it. But they were still, they were, they were ostracized because of their occupation. But they'd still buy the leather. But they'd still use the leather, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, the tabernacle was covered with skin. I mean, they they weren't unlawful. It's just they were just they're distasteful. You know, just keep your business out there. We don't want to smell that. You know, you, that stuff stinks. Yeah, it stinks. Yeah. Tanning tanning leather. So uh, we come to chapter ten here. We're going to really see some some action in in Peter's heart here. So uh, chapter ten. Hey Luke, come on in. Just in time, we just, I mean, well, we just got to chapter 10. All we just discussed was how Peter, he had some great ministry success in these, in some areas that were majorly Gentiles, so he kind of softened his heart toward his prejudices toward, toward Gentiles. He raised a girl from the dead and healed a paralytic in Joppa and Leda, which are majority Gentile places. And he ends up staying for many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. And, you know, tanners are, in that day, were ostracized. They had to keep their business at least 50 cubits out of town, all this kind of stuff. So we, here we are at chapter 10. Now, there was a man at Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is a really Gentile. I mean, it's really Gentile. It's a Roman town, okay? It's got a Roman circus where they raced the chariots, like you see in Ben-Hur. It had a... It had a man-made, or it has a man-made harbor. I mean, it's Roman construction. This is a Roman constructed town. There was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. A centurion is just merely a NCO. Um, the word centurion comes from a hundred. They were leaders of a hundred, hundred men platoons, you might say. Now, that didn't remain 100 all throughout. That number changed, but their their name always remained as Centurion. They were like the sergeants of the Roman legions. They were the NCOs. They, they were the backbone of the army. Just real quick, man, Centurions are really treated good in Scripture. Y'all know. Remember the Centurion? Jesus said, I have seen no one in Jerusalem with faith like yours. And at the cross... It was a centurion that cried out, surely this man is the son of God, or surely this man was innocent. That was a centurion at the cross who said that. Apparently, a lot of people believe he was the first Christian because he confessed that Jesus is the son of God at the cross. That's just a belief some have. According to Luke, this first Christian is going to be Cornelius. Because <clears throat> this, is, this is the whole significance of this whole passage is the gospel going to a to a Gentile, okay? But just, that's worth noting, centurions are well treated in Scripture. Um, this guy, Gen, this guy, Cornelius, I mean, we're facing a little bit more about him, but it seems like anytime we see centurions, you know, when 101, they seem to be pretty good guys. They're like, they're just working guys, you know? Well, he was a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. That's just the name of his division. A cohort, I think, was like eh, 60 legions or something like that. It was in a cohort. 
<clears throat> says it, the note says it, uh, a battalion. Yeah, so cohort is kind of equal. We would think of that as a battalion. So those, that one group of 100 would be considered like a company. So they were like a company commander. Okay. And here we go. We get a description of Cornelius. He was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. So he was a family man and he was devout. That word devout, I looked up the definition, basically boils down to fervent devotion. So he was fervently devoted to his family and to Yahweh. He's not a proselyte. He's not a He's not circumcised. He's not of the circumcision. He's a full-on Gentile, but he is—he's a devout man who feared God with all his household. So he feared God. So uh, he wasn't a worshiper of many Roman gods. He was a worshiper of the one true God. He gave many alms to the Jewish people, and he prayed to God continually. So we see he was a generous man. Toward the Jews, okay, who were under his his thumb, basically as a Roman, you know, he was their oppressor, but yet he was kind and he was generous toward them, and he prayed continually. He, not only he prayed to God continually, okay. So, what can we say about this man? Is he safe? See a believer? Are we talking about Cornelius? Cornelius, yeah. Yeah. This man, who is a centurion, devout man, he feared God with all his household. He gave many alms to the Jewish people and he prayed to God for Absolutely. Right now, though, he's not. Right. He's not. So he was saved like the people in the Old Testament, really. Let me read you this. Okay, here we're talking about Cornelius. Let me just read this whole section. As a centurion, Cornelius was a non-commissioned officer of the Roman army. They are not high-ranking. Like I said, they did most of the work. They were a backbone of a Roman legion. Our text says Cornelius was, quote, a devout man who feared God, and he prayed continually to God, end quote. As a typical Roman, he had been exposed to the Roman gods, Jupiter, Augustus, Mars, Venus, etc. They found they were not real and could, could do nothing for him. While stationed in Palestine, that's what the Romans called this area. That's where that name comes from. That Palestine, that's why it's called, that's, that's a Roman thing. The Romans named that area Palestine. He had been exposed, and we're still paying for that. Still paying for that. While stationed in Palestine, he had been exposed to the enlightened concepts of Judaism and had become devoutly monotheistic. So that's what we can say for sure about it. He was monotheistic. Now, did he believe all the promises of God and all that stuff? I don't know. But he was certainly monotheistic. As a result, he, a Roman soldier, gave offerings to benefit those in need among the Jewish people. There we go. Was he a sinner? Yes. Was he outside the covenant? Certainly. But was he a swine? No. 
He was a noble and spiritual-minded Roman army officer who was longing for the true God with all his household. In response to a deep, in response to the deep yearnings of the centurion's heart, God met Cornelius in a vision. And so, verse three, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision of an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, "Okay, so this guy's seeing visions from God. All right, he's meeting angels. This unbelieving Roman Gentile." <clears throat> And fixing his gaze on him, and being much alarmed, he said, no, okay, the guy come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him, and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, the angel, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Stop. Now, I've heard it said in more than one occasion that God does not hear the prayers of unbelievers. Only those in the covenant. And that he doesn't acknowledge any of our works before belief. Not according to this. This Roman centurion is told point blank, your prayers and your deeds of charity in your unbelief have ascended as a memorial before God. So that's something we can chew on. Okay, What does that mean? Okay, I don't have an answer for that, but it certainly jumped out at me when I read that. What specifically in this chapter makes you think he was not a believer? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Because he hasn't come yet. He, we're going to see that later. He hasn't come. He, he hasn't heard the gospel. But he, but he believes what he has heard. Well... When Peter comes to his house and presents the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls on him and him and all his household begin speaking in tongues. That's when the first Gentile is baptized into the church. Right now, he's just a man searching for God. He's under conviction, perhaps? Yes. Is he under conviction? Yes. Well, this is, is he trusting in Christ for his salvation? No. I have to disagree. It's rather specific this towards the Jewish people. Like the alms to the Jewish people. It's not... The alms to the Christian people, like your church. But what That's about the only people thing in the Old Testament? He would, as a Gentile, he would have to go and present stuff to the Jews because he couldn't get to God right. except through. Uh, it's more like I would say, more focused towards the Jewish people than the Christian as a whole. Well, because the Jews were the only Christians. It's kind of yeah. like Miss Judy said. I mean, were there no saved Christians in the Old Testament? Of course they were. Sure they were. They're Old Testament saints. They hadn't heard the gospel yet either. But they're all... Faith was accounted to him as righteousness. This guy, obviously, there's nothing to... I don't believe there's nothing in this chapter to lead us to believe that he didn't have faith in God. I mean, it it sounds very similar to Naaman as well. (laughs) Kind of same circumstances. It does, don't it? You know, Naaman was told, go in peace. But the whole point of this passage is to show when Cornelius and his household are, are, when the Holy Spirit is given to them, the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to them. That's that we, doesn't we, we mean, that doesn't mean though that that's the point he became. You know, yeah, whatever you want to call it. You know, 
that's not his that's point of justification necessarily. You're right. Because that Maybe. was happening through the laying on of hands in a lot of, in a lot of cases. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's possible. I mean, yeah. I, I wouldn't just completely disagree with that. But later is when he's actually brought into the covenant. When the Holy Spirit baptizes him into the church. And that's the point of this passage. It's a Gentile. You can look back at Noah and Abraham and, and all those Old Testament people. They're going to be in heaven when they get Yeah, they, they uh, certainly. They believe what God had told them was going to happen. Was Rahab the harlot of the Jew? Because she believed on the God. She was not. Um, she was not Jewish. She was, she was Gentile. In her household, for believing. Yeah. Well, okay, yeah, that's true. I guess possibly he was... I would say it was he had been counted as righteous, possibly, maybe. Well, after this point, though, Jesus had already came and died, and he became the sacrifice, and you had to believe that he was the Son of God. That's true. Before you were silent for your salvation, so maybe not. Yeah, we're, we're in the new covenant now. Don't, don't forget that. We're in the new covenant now. Okay. And it's been how many years? We're about six years from the cross here. The old covenant practices taking place in the temple are irrelevant now. It's the new covenant now. And we're going to see him brought into the covenant. Now, what was... So, what was, so the question before us is what was Cornelius' status before God prior to hearing the gospel from Peter and the Holy Spirit falling on him? I can't refute that. I don't know. And that's just what I believe. Like I'm saying, I can't be adamant about it, but that's what I believe. What I I do know is that's not the point of this passage. Part of the passage is he was a Gentile who had converted to monotheism and he was searching for God and he was serving God. Now, maybe he was because it says God heard his prayers and his memorial, his alms had ascended before God as a memorial. Maybe that's an indication that maybe he was. In grace, maybe. I don't know. I mean, even the people that do not ever have the gospel preached to them, they are without excuse. You're right. Okay. Let me say this again. I don't know the state of Cornelius' salvation here. We're not told. Okay. We're not told. It's not the point of the passage. We're just told he's a Gentile and he's looking for God. He's searching for God. Is he a sinner? Yes. Is he inside the covenant? Certainly not. There is no old covenant now. The old covenant is not in effect. It's a new covenant. He doesn't do away with it, though. It just fulfills it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic covenant. He fulfilled it. He doesn't do away with it. Well, let's look at something. Okay, let's, let, me, let me read y'all something. See if I can find it. It's a statement in Hebrews about the covenants. About it growing old and his manners. Yes. Let's see, is it chapter 8, verse 7? For if that first covenant, if that first covenant, this is Hebrews, Hebrews 8, chapter 7. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. 
for the house of Israel, for the house of Judah. Chapter 8, verse 7. This is not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And by the way, that's the heart of all the covenants. That's said in every one of them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So I believe what he's telling the people now is the old covenant believing loyalty to Yahweh is no longer in effect. You now have to trust in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The old covenant has been made obsolete. And it's passing away. In, in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. The all the sacrifices stop. That is all done away with. You can disagree with me, but I believe at this point, everything happening in the temple is empty religion. It's just religiosity. It has no effect on anything. They're just, they're, and even to this day, people who observe Judaism are practicing a false religion. They are denying their Messiah, and they are without hope. I don't care if they're loyal to Yahweh or not. If they're not believing in Jesus as their Savior, they are outside of grace. He's using these Hellenistic Jews and Gentiles to bring the saving grace of Jesus to them, and that's where it starts. So they have to believe in Jesus to be saved. His sacrifice, the sacrificial blood of Jesus, period. That's it. It can't, it can't be any other. The, the event has happened. Jesus has come in the flesh. He has came as the perfect Lamb of God. He has laid down his life for his friends. He's taken it back up again. And he has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is now interceding for the people in the new covenant. Now, Naaman, we talked about that. He displayed believing loyalty to Yahweh. And the prophet told him, go in peace. You're, you're good. Now, why is this, does that apply to Cornelius? Y'all, I'm a layman, not a theologian. <laughs> All I can say is, from my reading of it, Cornelius is not in the covenant because we're going to see him come into the covenant in, in just about later on in this chapter. And according to the, according to the author of Hebrews, the old covenant has been made obsolete in the new covenant. That's all I, that's all I can say about it. Okay, so are we out of time? Yep. All right.